0: Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham, coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, talking about a new book from the University of Regina Press entitled Firewater, How Alcohol is Killing My People, and yours by Harold Johnson, who joins us on the phone. Good morning, Harold. Good morning, Sean. How are you today?
1: Life is good. We're finally
0: getting some cold. Yeah, it's it's really starting to turn here at the start of winter and uh, starting to bog down for a a long cold winter. It would appear. And uh, here to talk about your book, you are uh, an interesting guy because you know we, we tend to have a lot of you know academics on the show, but you have experience as a crown prosecutor in Treaty Six territory, which really lays the framework for what this book is about
1: this is just poem this is where i where i grew up and this is where i
0: returned to and and so for you uh, obviously this book when you think about the title here it's about alcohol what prompts this for you in terms of writing a book that is discussing the negative impact of alcohol on not just obviously as the title suggests your community but all of our community
1: There's never one reason for writing a book. There's several. So as as you mentioned, I was a crime prosecutor. I witnessed 95% of the people who came into court were intoxicated by alcohol at the time they committed their offense. I've had two brothers killed by drunk drivers. I had a teacher, someone that I went to for spiritual and life advice, who told me that he had taught me enough and it was time now for me to get to work. I needed to do something. Um... All of those
0: things all together. why I well. Now, there certainly is a, I don't know if stereotype's the right word, but a stereotype that alcohol hits the indigenous community harder than the, the other communities across the country. In your experience, is that stereotype accurate, or is it more confirmation bias when uh, an indigenous individual has a alcohol dependency that that sort of gets highlighted more than a non-indigenous individual.
1: It it goes both ways. One, the stereotype is not true. Thirty-five percent of Aboriginal people in Canada are completely abstinent, compared to eighteen percent of Canadians. So there are twice as many Aboriginal people who don't drink at all than in the Canadian population. So that stereotype is statistically wrong.
0: So where do you think the it is? Majority... Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: It's wrong, and it's true. Aboriginal people have a drinking pattern of binge drinking. So the harms that we experience here in, I'm just talking about northern Saskatchewan, the leading cause of death in northern Saskatchewan right now is injury at 24.3% of all deaths, compared to Saskatchewan, which has a death rate from injury at about 6%. And that number is inflated because the north brings that provinces number up. We know that injury is caused by car accidents, ski accidents, drowning, stabbing, shootings, beatings, house fires, suicide, freezing to death, and we know that that is primarily alcohol. Yes, alcohol has a bigger impact on us than in the rest of Canada, even though the numbers of us who drink are less.
0: Is it a product of that alcohol becomes prominent within specific communities then? Because that number of 35% certainly higher than what I would have guessed for for really any community you mentioned the, the national average being much lower than that which is more in line of what I would guess for for really any community across the country so is it a, a product of the, that alcohol and alcoholism becomes a, a sort of a major issue within specific uh, communities towns something like that or, or is the, the problem widespread?
1: The problem seems to be widespread, but in each community, so as a Crown prosecutor, I'd fly into a northern community of 1,800 people, and we'd see the same 400 people over and over and over and over again, and doing the same things over and over and over again. What was frustrating about it was we had a judge and a prosecutor and a defense counsel doing the same thing over and over and over again, and everybody wondering why nothing was changing. There'd be people in that community that we would never see. Personally, I'd be surprised because I think I've been coming here for years, I know all of the surnames of everybody who lives in this community, and then a surname would pop up that I never saw before.
0: So when, when you would go into the community as a, as a Crown Prosecutor, and you say you would see the same people over and over and over again, what sort of things could you do, or, or, or what does the law prescribe in order to help people? who have alcohol related problems or dependency or whatever else it is because obviously you know this this percentage that you just said are 24 uh, percent compared to six percent for the provincial average there in Saskatchewan in terms of deaths by injury that is that goes beyond to me at least in, in hearing that a criminal justice issue in terms of you know sending people to jail fines whatever it is. so is there something in the law that would allow a crown prosecutor such as yourself To help people?
1: No. (laughs) Quite bluntly, no. The justice system is not helping. It's not maintaining the status quo. The justice system is making it worse. In what way? Residential schools removed people from the communities and erased culture. And that was going on for a long time, back in the 40s, 50s. By 1960, Before 1960, there were very, very few Aboriginal people in custody. Beginning in 1960, the incarceration rate of Aboriginal people in Canada began a steady increase that has continued up until today. And nothing that the justice system has done, nothing that the legislature has done, nothing that the Supreme Court has done has made any difference to that rate. And it continues to increase. What happens when you take an Aboriginal person out of the community and put them in a jail is we teach them jailhouse culture. We teach them that the institution is going to feed you, the institution is going to give you shelter, you learn to be disrespectful of authority, you learn that violence solves problems. And then these people return to the community, bringing jailhouse culture back with them. And to many of our youth now who've lost traditional culture, there's a belief the jailhouse culture is Aboriginal culture. So the justice system, by incarcerating people and changing their culture, has changed the culture of pockets in our community.
0: In thinking about that, does this jailhouse culture that you mentioned, does that then encourage recidivism and having people go back to jail? You mentioned you know, being fed, housed, all that kind of stuff. Does that encourage that and make it so that going to jail doesn't seem as punitive or as bad?
1: If everybody in your community has gone to jail, if your dad's been to jail and both of your older brothers and three of your uncles, and they've come back and told stories about what it was like, and you know that all of those people are good people, uh, they get drunk and they do stupid things, but most of the time they're good people, that look after their families, their hunters and their fishers, and they're just they decent to be around. They get drunk and mess up once in a while. So you know that good people can go to jail. So there is no deterrent effect. Deterrence doesn't work anyway. When you're dealing with problems that are almost entirely caused by alcohol, you cannot rely on deterrence because someone who is intoxicated is not thinking about what a judge is going to say 18 months down the
0: road. So in your experience, what is the the answer in terms of, or, or potential answer in terms of that, in terms of... I don't know if the word is protecting people when they are drinking and trying to address some of these alcohol-related problems in in these communities?
1: There's a few things the Justice System can do. Um, There is a program out of South Dakota called 24-7. If you are charged with domestic violence or impaired driving in South Dakota, there's a chance you're going to be put on a 24-7 order. And if you're on that order, you have to report to a police station twice a day once in the morning, once in the evening, and blow into a breathalyzer. If you fail to show up at the police station or you blow into the breathalyzer and there's alcohol on your desk, you are put in jail for up to two days. Immediate detection, immediate consequences. People don't breathe. We frequently put people on judges' order in Canada to abstain from the consumption of alcohol, and I'm estimating about 85% of those orders are breached. With immediate detection, immediate consequences. People don't reach the orders. The Rand Institute went to South Dakota and studied the program there, and they determined that the incidences of domestic violence were down considerably. Second impaired driving charges were down considerably. The injury rate to males between the ages of 19 and 40 were also down, but most significantly, the death rate from alcohol in South Dakota was down. By about four percent and they know that it was the 24 7 program because the program was entered into one county at a time across the state so they're able to track it
0: and has that program it, been exported elsewhere
1: it is in several states now i called the district attorney down there and said i know you've got pine ridge reservation in South Dakota and I know that Pine Ridge's problems look much the same as what I've got in northern Saskatchewan how do you get people to the police station there because you've got huge distances and people who don't have vehicles I said oh we use transdermal bracelets I look into transdermal bracelets when you drink alcohol 1% of the alcohol that you drink comes out through your skin unchanged so that's why you smell like tequila the next day There's a bracelet that you can put on your ankle. If you consume any alcohol, the bracelet will detect it. The bracelet is foolproof. You can't slip a piece of cellophane in between the bracelet and your skin. You can't put grease on. You can't, a whole bunch of things that'll catch you. Looking at states that use transdermal bracelets, they have a breach rate of about 17%. 17% is much better than our 85% that I'm estimating here for breaching judge's orders. And then when you look at the breach rate and break it down, 15% of that was for tampering with the bracelet. So you've got this bracelet on, you've got it on 24 hours a day, it's on your mind all the time. You're just trying to figure out how to beat this thing, and it tells on you and calls the police. Only 2% of the breaches were for actual consumption of alcohol.
0: Which is obviously, as you're saying, much, much lower than the percentage that that you're estimating there in uh, northern Saskatchewan. And it it, yeah. seem, it it seems like as, as you say I mean the the, the point of these things is at least in listening to you and, and going through the book a little bit, as I said it's not supposed to be punitive necessarily, but rather to help people uh, am I am I right in suggesting that?
1: I agree with you uh, punishment doesn't work. We've got a highly traumatized population here so as a crown prosecutor, I handled about a thousand files a year or 1500 files a year a thousand of those with documented trauma so the person who did it is traumatized the victim is traumatized and so are the five children who watched and that's for each of my thousand files there are 11 prosecutors in northern Saskatchewan so that's 11,000 files each with multiple trauma victims documented there's only 38,000 people in northern Saskatchewan it only takes a few years until that population is traumatized multiple times. So we start adding trauma to this. When a person is traumatized, they experience high anxiety, depression, overwhelming sense of sorrow. In a constant state, a fight, flight, or freeze. And alcohol ameliorates all of those symptoms. Alcohol is very good medicine for people who are experiencing PTSD. The problem with it is the side effects you quickly develop a tolerance to alcohol and it requires more and more. And then the intoxicating aspect, it results in more people being traumatized because of what people do when they're trying to ameliorate their own symptoms of trauma.
0: So does that account for that higher percentage of alcohol problems then in in communities because of, as you mentioned, the the trauma effect? Uh, But does that then, as you say, suggest spread through the community so that if I... As a son, if I see my parents having trauma, does does the trauma pass to me in the same way that I would then be more likely to become dependent on alcohol in the same way? If
1: your parents have PTSD or symptoms of trauma, those symptoms are going to be amplified in you. Your your trauma is going to be worse than theirs. Uh, These are are studies done by people uh, who've gone to residential schools and generations down the line, the symptoms are greater than the person who went to residential school.
0: What accounts for that? I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> <Yeah>. But tra-
1: <laughs> trauma is only one aspect of it. Trauma is just one part of it. There's, like I said at the beginning, there's never one reason for anything. It's not simple. We also have the social determinants of health. So in Ottawa, there will be Communities where the life expectancy would be 60, 65 years old, and in Ottawa, in richer communities, the life expectancy will be 80, 85 years. Old. And that's just within Ottawa. In those pockets where there are lower social, where wealth comes into play, uh, lower incomes, all of those things, there's more crime as well, more drinking. And isn't because of wealth disparities entirely. That's part of it. The dis- difference is in hope. In wealthier communities, people have hope. In poorer communities, they don't. So if you don't have any hope that there's going to be a tomorrow, they more likely that you're going to eat that piece of cake today and not worry about your waistline. And so we have higher obesity rates. You're not going to worry about tomorrow and you're going to drink all of that whiskey today you're going to spend the money that you have today and you're not going to worry about the end of the month because you don't have hope that the end of the month is going to
0: get here right and it seems like uh, for me you know you talk about trauma and the lack of hope that those two things are are intermixed as well that sort of going through traumatic experiences and, and that snowball effect that you mentioned where it gets worse that that would affect the the sense of hope within these these communities and and so it becomes more than, as you say, more than an economic issue, more than purely a trauma issue. It becomes sort of this, this mass effect of all these different issues coming together that is seriously hurting these communities. And, you know, I have friends and, and people here in Ottawa who always – or who when we discuss issues like this, it seems to me that people want a quick fix – for these type of problems. But in, in listening to you talk, it's clear that there's nothing, that there's not a, something that's gonna fix this tomorrow. Yeah. And, and it's a multifaceted, we need a multifaceted approach.
1: And that is what we're working on. The Northern Alcohol Strategy that I am part of today is working on bringing all of the instant justice, healthcare, education, policing, um, Chamber of Commerce, municipal, band governments all together to work on changing the story that we tell ourselves about alcohol. and I believe that that is the only way that we're going to change it. Justice can't do it by itself. Healthcare has lots of tools, but they can't fix it by themselves. Uh, education is learning. There are evidence-based approaches for teaching or talking to youth about alcohol that are being implemented. But we need everybody. We need the churches on board. We need the sweat keepers. We need the pipe carriers. We need powwow dancers. We need hockey teams.
0: That. and how much of this goes beyond the 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 just the indigenous communities because uh, you know the, the subtitle of the book of course refers you know my people and yours that sort of it, this is a, a a broad macro communal issue for everybody across the country and and it, it seems to me that obviously that we all have a part in this process
1: oh absolutely the cancer agencies across canada met And they wanted to talk about how do we message to Canadians about the risks of cancer from consuming alcohol. And there are several cancers that are directly related to consumption of alcohol. For example, if a woman has one drink a day, it increases the risk of breast cancer substantially. Cancer agencies have come together trying to figure out how do we bring this message to Canadians and there's fear in the room. We are back in that situation where we were a few decades ago when we started talking about tobacco and cancer and the reaction from the industry. And we know that that backlash is coming. We start talking about cancer and alcohol, that industry is going to react the same way that the tobacco industry did. Uh, So we've got a big problem. We've got a lot of serious work to do across Canada and around the world. And the World Health Organization is way ahead on this. Canada's quite behind. Countries like Scotland and Finland are way ahead of Canada and creating strategies to deal with alcohol.
0: Yeah, and and there's There's, that divide, right? Because uh, here in in Ontario, uh, not to get overly political, but our, our premier, he ran in part on reducing the price of beer He's implemented a change in how long alcohol can be sold. The the hours have been extended so that you can buy alcohol uh, as late as 11 p.m. in the uh, LCBO, the the provincial retailer here. So you're right. There's this sort of disconnect between this cultural prevalence of alcohol in this country and these studies that continue to come out showing its negative health effects And it it just seems like across the country, we are, as a group, as a collective, willing to ignore these things despite the evidence to the contrary.
1: Most people are unaware of the evidence. Hmm. Most people in Canada, and probably most of the people who voted for $1 beer, are unaware that alcohol causes cancer. They're unaware that heavy alcohol use, damages the heart. They haven't been told that alcohol is responsible for over 200 illnesses and injuries. They simply don't know. Uh, It's going to be interesting to watch Ontario in the next few years. Uh, The increases in violence, the damages to health, the decreases in education, all of those things that are going to come into play. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch the numbers between Canada and more responsible province, or between Ontario and more responsible provinces. A 1% increase in the price of alcohol in the United States. A uh, study showed a 3% decrease in domestic violence.
0: That's remarkable. And, and now here we are in, in this province doing the opposite of that, or attempting to do the opposite of that uh, in terms yeah. of the price. The the
1: industry is a powerful lobby. I was told by government people when I began this project of taking on alcohol that I should avoid tackling the industry because the industry is such a powerful lobby that I would not succeed.
0: Have you come up to any uh, resistance from industry people? Have you heard from anybody? Uh, No, not
1: directly because I haven't uh, uh, challenged industry. Okay. But the you know, the Yukon Territory tried to put warnings on alcohol bottles, warning that alcohol caused cancer and were threatened by the industry. And you've got to remember, the Yukon Territory isn't very big. I think there's like 30,000 people who live there in total. They don't have a huge tax base. They couldn't afford to take on the industry in a court battle. And the territory withdrew. They were bullied hmm. into taking the warning off the bottles by the industry. That was just within the last year.
0: You do wonder what would happen if it was a more populous province that might have more sway? I, I don't know. Or, or, or would the industry, do you think, just come back harder on that?
1: I don't know. Yeah. I know that British Columbia feels confident enough to bring a lo- lawsuit against the opiate uh, distributors. Oh. Uh, but they don't have because of the uh, harms caused by opiates in British Columbia. But they don't have the courage to take on alcohol, which is doing far more damage.
0: Yes, uh, as is described in the book, again, Firewater, How Alcohol is Killing My People and Yours. And now, now Harold, uh, I have very much enjoyed this, but I, I do also, because I don't have much time left with you, uh, unfortunately, I want to talk about your other new book uh, entitled Clifford that... Uh, recently came out, uh, and this is a book. It's it's described here as sort of equal parts memoir, science fiction, and fantasy uh, about the life and death of your older brother. Uh, so I, I'm just curious. We we talked about it a little bit before we started recording that you know in in listening to your description of your brother, it, it basically sounded like a genius. He probably was. I
1: don't know what genius means.
0: Um... <laughs> Smarter than he well, was, he's definitely smarter than me. Uh, but that's not a high, but that's not a high bar. So
1: <laughs> he was capable of thinking at levels that most people don't even attempt. To,
0: yeah. So, um, so you know, the the science part of this, you mentioned that he he uh, came up with uh, or solved basically quantum weirdness, which is this, uh, as you describe it. Uh, by the way, I, I love that when you described it to me, I was able to kind of understand it. Uh, and basically, you know, the the minute that you described it, which is very hard for any scientific concept um, to go forward. Yeah, the reason I wrote,
1: one of the reasons, like I said repeatedly here, there's never one reason for anything. But one of the reasons I wrote Clifford is because I wanted to bring those ideas about science, about quantum physics, about solving the theory of everything, gravity, the strong force in the atom, the weak force in the atom, electromagnetism, and bring them all together and explain them in a way that I couldn't any other way. I tried writing them as scientific articles and they just fell flat. Hmm. But when I Clifford explained them, it worked. Uh, people were able to grasp concepts like uncertainty, quantum weirdness, the theory of everything, and solve the Big Bang Theory. Oh, really? Yeah, according to this theory of Clifford, there was no Big Bang. The universe is in a constant state of expansion because it's surrounded by a void. And the void is eating the universe. But as it eats the universe, it is stretching the universe in all directions. And when you stretch something, you put energy into it, like an elastic band. If you took an elastic band and weighed it and then stretched it and weighed it again, it would weigh more when it was stretched because it has more energy in it. The same thing is happening to our universe because it's surrounded by a void. And that stretching, energy and mass are the same thing. That's Einstein's theory, E equals mc squared. So the energy that's being put into the universe by it being devoured creates the mass of the universe. So the universe is in a constant state of being destroyed and created. And that when we look out at the universe and it looks like it's expanding everywhere,
0: That's all that we Wow. That's pretty deep for a a Saturday morning as we record this, uh, to to think about all that. Uh, But we would definitely encourage everybody to get that book. It is titled uh, Clifford uh, by Harold R. Johnson, and we would certainly encourage you to get that, as well as Firewater, How Alcohol is Killing My People and Yours. Harold Johnson, thank you so much for the time this morning. I very much enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thanks for having me on,
0: Sean. If you have any questions or comments for the show, you can find us at historyslam at gmail.com. I am at Dr. Fever on Twitter. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your show. Give us the likes, ratings, all that fun stuff to keep the show going. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me.